Luke chapter 2. We have spent the last few times together um, and this last weekend and holiday season looking at the birth of Jesus. Jesus as a baby. And last week's message by Pastor Rich was just awesome. I know you guys agree. How Jesus, who was and is God, came to us as a man, but born a baby, a baby, a baby helpless, dependent, totally 100% dependent upon uh, his parents. And I just thought that was amazing. Look what God does. He, he sent his son, Jesus, into this world as a man, but completely dependent upon his parents to tend and to care for him. And I thought that was great. And, um, but now as we are moving from that portion of Jesus's life, now we're going to study and look at the next event of Jesus's life, which ironically is not too far out, but it's about 12 years out. And so we want to take a look at that, and I'll draw some points there as we go along. But if you join me there, Luke chapter 2, verse 39, it says there, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. Well, when they performed what things? Well, previously in the chapter, what had happened was they had gone to the temple, and there were uh, you know, laws that had to be conducted and that sort of thing for newborns and, and babies and whatnot and, and in the temple. But what we find out is that there was a man named Simeon. And Simeon was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a righteous and just man. And he was told and promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not pass away before he would hold the Redeemer and see the Redeemer. In other words, the uh, Savior of Israel and Savior of the world. And he was told that, and earlier in the chapter we see that. Simeon, this righteous man, as he goes into the temple, he sees the parents, he sees Mary and Joseph, and he sees Jesus. And if you just back up there in the chapter, verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple, this is Simeon, and he came there by the Spirit, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And he goes into this wonderful prayer, this wonderful blessing. But basically he says, now I can rest. Now I can die. I can see this is the Christ. This is Jesus, his Christ. And it's a wonderful, beautiful picture. But the point I want to bring up to you there is that Simeon, this old man, was able to take Jesus up into his arms. And so that indicates to us that Jesus was a little guy, still a babe. We don't know probably how old. Perhaps we could dive back into the law and find out exactly what age they were to be taken to the temple and, and all those sorts of things. Maybe many of you know. But the point of the matter is that it indicates to us that Jesus was yet just a little, little guy, able to be picked up and held by this old man, Simeon. And Simeon looks and says, yes, now, thank you, Lord, it has come true. What the Holy Spirit told me would come true has and is coming true this very moment as I, as I hold Jesus, his Christ. Beautiful picture. Well, then we fast forward and we, we don't see a whole lot in scripture of Jesus's like childhood, like little guy-ish, you know, toddler-ish and, you know, the terrible twos. Did the terrible twos happen with Jesus? I don't know. 
I used to say terrible twos around one of my best friends. He's retired now and moved away. But uh, he goes, no, no. His kids were older than mine. They're not terrible twos. They're terrific twos. And he would remind me of that every time I said, oh, the terrible twos, referring to maybe perhaps one of my children. And no, eh, he'd remind me, no, they're not terrible twos. They're terrific twos. In other words, don't ever forget this time. Yeah, it's, you're struggling perhaps, but you'll look back with fond memories at this age. And perhaps some of you have been there with your kids too. The terrific twos. Well, what about then later on, you know, five and six, seven? What was it like to be the parent of Jesus? What would it, he, what would it be like to be the parents of a kid who doesn't sin? What would that be like? What would it be like to be the parents of, uh, you know, Jesus and he never gets in trouble? You never have to discipline him, you know? It, it says, spare the rod, spoil the child. Jesus didn't need the rod. You know, he didn't need that. We don't, we don't really know. We don't get that. The only event that we see next after him being small enough to be held by the old man Simeon, we fast forward to when he's 12 years old. And that brings us to our story today. So verse 40, let's jump to there. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. What was happening in the terrific twos? What was happening when he was five, six, seven? Tells us right there. That much we do know. He was growing. Not just physically, but he was growing in the spirit. He was acquiring wisdom. And, and he was being filled with the spirit of God. And the, and the spirit and the grace of God was upon him. Beautiful. Now, verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, here we are, we fast forward from being small enough to be held by an old man in the temple. We fast forward and pass all those years that wonder what happened. We can only guess. Now we're at an age where we find out this is the next event. He's 12 years old. And it says, when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. They're traveling to the Passover feast to Jerusalem. My title of today's message is, No Child Left Behind. No Child Left Behind. And we kind of know in this day and age that phrase and how it's been coined in recent years. But I kind of like it for our message today, and we'll dive a little bit further into that as we go along. But no child left behind. You see, they would travel together specifically to these feasts, the Passover in our passage today. They would travel to the Passover, but they would do it in a way in a community effort. In other words, the community would gather together and, hey, we're all going to the same place anyway. We might as well, tra might as well travel together. So they would, they would travel together in a community uh, together and you know, the children and the women, they would be up front and the men would kind of be in the back and ensuring that no one got left behind. And they did that thing for uh, certain reasons and that one was specifically one of them. So no one got left behind. The whole community traveled together in this caravan and off they'd go and, and they would go to uh, the temple to celebrate these feasts. Well, the feast that they're celebrating in this passage is Passover. 
Don't you find that interesting? They're going to celebrate a feast that directly represents the boy that they would be having in their caravan. Remember the Passover. Remember Exodus. Remember when the, the Hebrews were in slavery, they were in captivity in Egypt, and all of the plagues were going through succession and in order. And then finally, the one thing that finally broke Pharaoh, the one thing that finally said, Moses, you and your people, get out of here. The one thing that finally broke his heart, because his heart was hardened, remember? That finally was the night of Passover, what had took place. They were to take a lamb. You guys remember the story? They were to take a lamb, and they were to have this lamb with them for a few days in their house. And then on a certain time at twilight, the lamb was to be slaughtered, and it was to be roasted over a fire. But the blood of that lamb was to be put where? On the doorposts. They were to take the doorpost, they were to take the blood of the lamb and they were to take it and they were to put it on the doorposts of their home. So that way when the death angel came through Egypt at midnight that night, he would see the blood on the doorpost which represented the blood of a savior and then would pass over and the firstborn was spared. A house that did not have that, a residence did not, that did not have that, the firstborn died in that house. And it says there in Egypt, there was a great cry that night. A lot of death happened. And even Pharaoh himself, his firstborn died. Even livestock, crazy, huh? The death angel, though, would see the, the blood put on the doorpost, and there was a, a vertical representation and a a horizontal representation of that blood, which indicates what? The cross. A lamb, an innocent lamb, had to die for that blood to be produced, to be put on there as a sign. The death angel would see that and pass over and spare the firstborn. Years and years throughout the centuries, they celebrated that Passover. And now here they are going to the Passover to celebrate something that directly represents the, their child. Did they know that? You wonder, did Joseph and Mary, did they make that connection? They knew he was destined for great. They knew that, uh, you know, that he was, uh, that obviously this was a miraculous sending. They knew that he was destined for great things, but did they make that connection? You gotta wonder, we're not told. But they're celebrating a feast that represented their boy that was with them in their caravan. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating to me. Well, they get there, and it says there that when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up. Now, verse 43. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. Now, this is kind of cool to me because you're thinking to yourself, what was he up to? You see, they traveled as a community together, women and children up front, men in the back, no one got left behind. We're all caravanning up to celebrate Passover, to celebrate the feast. And, and as they're there, they're there for not just the temple and those sorts of things. They're probably around the town and doing other things as well. But when those days were completed, now it's time for that caravan to go back to the village, right? They all caravaned back. But Jesus stayed back. He lingered back. Remember we talked about disciplining Jesus? Well, 
why, how could you do that? How could you discipline Jesus for staying back? It's, it's kind of funny. We'll see in a moment how Mary tries to do that, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. I don't want to jump ahead. One thing I want to point out to you is this. Luke is very careful what he tells us in this verse. Notice what he says there in verse 43. He says, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. Luke's very careful to tell us that he, that he says, it didn't say, and his father and mother did not know it. Luke says, Joseph and his mother didn't know it. He makes the clear delineation. He, he clearly says, listen, Joseph was not his father. Yes, he was his father figure physically uh, in a physical representation as far as families would work, but he clearly tells us that that Joseph was not Jesus's father, but does call Mary his mother for obvious reasons. Now that'll be important here in a moment when we get further into our text, but just kind of tuck that away. Verse 44, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So the days were fulfilled, they celebrated Passover, they all came, uh, to the temple as a community. Those days were fulfilled, whatever it is they did in Jerusalem those days. Besides that, the goings on, now it's time to go back. And so they assumed that Jesus was amongst the people, the friends and the acquaintances and the family members. They assumed that he was with them and they travel back, but they make it a day's journey. By the end of the day, they realize, they go, huh, I, hmm. yeah, have you seen Jesus? No, I He's probably with, back there with the, the kids, you know, and well, maybe we should go find him. They make it a whole day's journey to realize as they go back and they look for him, they, it says there that they sought him amongst the relatives and acquaintances. But, verse 45, so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Uh-oh. Our child in the story was left behind. But was he left behind or did Jesus linger behind for a reason? It's interesting because they make it a whole day's journey and that's when they find out, where's Jesus? Where is he? Credit must be given to them though because what do they do? So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. This is interesting and this is the point I want to make to you today. The church of Ephesus was basically told the same thing in the book of Revelation. Jump there with me, will you? Will you jump over to Revelation? The last book of the Bible, as they say, it's the easy one to find. Revelation chapter 2. The men and I got to experience this a few months back when we've been going through the churches in our Revelation study. Revelation chapter 2, and I'll just go there to verse, verse 2. Jesus is speaking here to John. Remember, John is the one who got the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was um, boiled in oil. It didn't kill him. And so what they did, Domitian said, okay, then get out of here. And he sends him to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And this island was not... Uh, an island that you'd want a vacation to. This was an island of exile. 
and prisoners were sent there. And of course, John being deemed as a prisoner because they, they couldn't kill him, so they, they just exiled him to Patmos. And it was there in that, in that island, that place of dry um, isolation, that Jesus spoke to him. And he got the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Christ. And he gets this whole book, my favorite book, I've said it many times, he gets this whole book and he gets the revealing. But in current time to his day, and even reflects to us today, the church age, Jesus is talking to him about the churches. And what we have found out in our men's study is that what Jesus says to these churches, we find very practically in our churches today. Why? Because we're in the same age. We are in the church age. And listen to what the Lord says to the church of Ephesus. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Those are all good things. He's commending the church. Look, I see all these good things that you uh, have done and that you are doing. But verse 4, nevertheless, here's the indictment. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Ooh, that's powerful. Notice there, it doesn't say that you've lost your first love. It says there that you've left your first love. What's your first love? Remember when you were first saved? Remember when you were just on fire and you just had this awesome relationship with the Lord? And yeah, we know that, you know, by, by getting saved doesn't mean all your problems go away. Uh, in your life, and sometimes it feels like they accumulate, but still there was that fire, that on-fire feeling you felt. You realized that you're, you were a sinner. You realized that Jesus forgave you of your sins, and you just had this renewing in your spirit. Remember that? Remember that feeling and that, that, that first love that you had? Perhaps it was that, or perhaps it was when you first started in ministry, the Lord used you in a mighty way, and you just had all of these awesome, amazing uh, feelings and relationship with the Lord. You were close, and you, but what happens over time? The church gets busy with the practical things, and that's what took place, is that I've seen you do all of these things. You've labored for me. You've this, you've that, you've done this ministry and all that, but all of a sudden, this is what I have against you. You've left your first love. That is true in churches today congregationally, but folks, listen, it's also true with you and I individually. It can happen to you and I individually. We can get so wrapped up and tied up and, and we make sure we put all the checks in the right boxes and we can do all these things in ministry and we can labor and we can all these things and then we wonder why, why does this feel so empty? Did we lose our first love? Did we leave our first love? Well, what do we do about it? He says, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Repent. Repent and remember from where you have fallen. Now you can jump over with me all the way to the other side of the Bible, 2 Kings. 
2 Kings, and this story kind of reinforces what we just looked at in Revelation. This goes hand in hand. This is a practical story. Remember in the Old Testament, what happened to them physically happens to us spiritually. Yeah. So that's why I love the Old Testament, because when you look at stories in the Old Testament, what happens to them physically happens to us today in the New Testament, in the new church age, spiritually. And this story is very practical too. We go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. You might remember this story. It says, The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. The ministry that they were doing, these, these uh, Elisha sort of being the mentor, and, and these young men learning under Elisha, uh, under the prophet, they were gathered together, but the place where they were meeting and dwelling in this ministry was too small. And they're like, this place is too small for us. We need to expand, get a little bit bigger here. In verse 2, please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. And so he answered, go. Then one said, verse 3, please consent to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So they all go together, verse 4. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. It's our, one of our first indications of loggers. It's for a special family member of mine. These loggers here, they came to get more uh, building, or building materials. Verse 5, but as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. These guys, they, they say, Elisha, this place is too small. We're, look how many. We're, they're coming. In. The, the work of the Lord is it's happening. We've got to build. We've got to expand. And so let, let's go to the Jordan and come with us. And, and we'll chop down some trees and we'll get some building materials. And we'll come back and, and we'll build and expand. He goes, yeah, I like that. Go ahead and go. We'll come with us. Okay. And so they do, and while they're there, this young man, he's chopping down a tree, and as he does, whoo, whoo, there goes the iron axe head into the water. Now, this would be impossible to recover. I mean, you would have to be searching and everything, and it would be just nearly impossible to recover. I don't believe, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the Jordan is as clear and beautiful as our rivers around here, from what I'm told. This would be very, very difficult to find, and this is an iron axe head. It was borrowed nonetheless. So it was a tool that was being utilized for the work of the Lord, but now that cutting edge has flown off. Now the man here in the story, this young man, credit must be given to him too. Why? Because what does he do? He cries out immediately, and he says, alas, master, oh, master, I have a problem. And he goes, what is it? Well, the axe head flew off and it was borrowed. This was a big deal. This would have been expensive to replace. It would have been very difficult to replace in these days. It wasn't his. But the thing I want to point out to you is that he cried out immediately. He recognized the problem and he cried out immediately. Now, he could have just been continuing to kind of try to hide it and hack away with this wooden handle. 
and nobody sees the difference. You know, they're all working and stuff, and he's amongst them, like still hacking away, trying to hide, you know, and still chopping away. But is, the, is there any effectiveness to that? The picture in this story of the iron axe head is the Holy Spirit, the cutting edge, the effectiveness of ministry. You know what the wooden handle's a picture of? Our flesh. It's our flesh. How do I know that? Wood, hay, and stubble. Will wood, hay, and stubble be staying on the altar when, and the bema seat, when the eyes of Jesus look? What happens to the wood, hay, and stubble? They get burned up, consumed, whew, gone. Why? Because things done in our flesh do not have a place in eternity. Oh, but I, I do all of the works of the Lord. I labor, and I work so hard, and I'm there early, and I'm there late, and I do the children's ministry, and I this, and, or my marriage, I work so hard in, in my marriage, or, or at my job, being a good, I do all of the, I labor. But the Lord said, you've lost your first love. If the cutting edge is not there, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, have you lost your first love? Yeah, he could have continued hacking away with that wooden handle, but would anything have gotten done? Working so hard in the flesh, and the cutting edge has left. Missing. Gone. But he sees the problem, and he realizes the problem. Alas, master, he cries out. Well, what happens? So the man of God, verse 6, said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. How cool. The interesting thing about this is he cries out immediately and the man says, well, where did you lose it? Where'd you lose it? Where'd you lose that cutting edge? Where'd you lose that sharpness? Oh, right over here. I know exactly where I lost it. Take me there. Take me there. And they return and he chops off a little branch and he throws it in and the iron floats. And what does the young man do? Therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. And so he reached out his hand and he took it. Ooh, cool. He returned back to the place where he lost that cutting edge. And that's exactly what, in Revelation, the Lord would tell Ephesus, Re repent and return to your first love. Return. Where was it that you lost your cutting edge? Where was it that you left that first love? I feel like I'm doing everything in my flesh. Nothing's getting done. The effectiveness, the sharpness, it's gone. The Lord would say, well, where did you lose it? And what that story tells us, what happened to him physically happens to us spiritually today, and it would tell me, hey, Riv, where did you lose that sharpness. Where did you lose that love? When you're trying to do everything in the flesh and you're working so hard and you're laboring and you're, you're just, you're beside yourself. Take a minute. Where did you lose it? Where was, where was that love overwhelming in your heart? Where, where, do you remember the time when you just, your prayers were just like so, and you, your relationship with the Lord was just so vibrant? Do you remember the time where your devotions were just, you know, and now there might be a dullness? 
to it? Where in your life did you feel that sharpness and did you feel that fire in your heart? Where was that? Oh, I know exactly where that was. Then repent and go back there. That's what we're told, folks. That's what we're told, and that's our reminder. Repent and go back to that place, that place of sharpness. And so I correlate that back. We get back to our text in Luke because what did Joseph and Mary do? They realized that Jesus was not with them. A child had been left behind, and they're like, oh, no. But what did they do? They went back. They went back to where they last saw Jesus, and they go back, but look what they do. We're back in Luke, verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Where do they find Jesus? In the temple, in the house of the Lord. And this is cool because it says there, verse 47, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Jump back to verse 46, though. So it was after three days. So they had a day's journey. Remember, the whole community traveled. They, they made it a whole day. And at the end of the day, they asked, Where, hey, where's you? Have you seen? No. So they looked around. They didn't find him. So now they got to travel a day's journey back. And then finally, on the third day, which is interesting because we all know what happened on the third day. On the third day, they find Jesus. And where is he? He's in the house of the Lord. Now, the mind can go kind of crazy because you're thinking, for three days, what was he up to? Well, we're told he's there, you know, hanging out with the teachers and the scholars, and, and they were probably uh, talking about the, the law and, and the Torah and, and all of the prophets of past and the, all, all these things. But where did Jesus sleep? Did he eat? Did they ask him, little boy, where's your parents? I just wonder about things like that. We're not really told. We just know that three days later, here comes Joseph and Mary. And the scene is interesting because here's what happens. Verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. So this is kind of like our only glimpse if you want to try to form it into the glass of a discipline time for Jesus. I mean, it, Jesus was perfect. He was man, but sinned not. So even as a child, he didn't sin. But we kind of see where, you know, this is, I guess, Mary's attempt to try to discipline him for doing what? So Jesus is in trouble kind of for what, being in the house of the Lord and, and astonishing the scholars. By the way, he wasn't just kind of holding his own. It says there he was astonishing the scholars. He astonished the teachers. He was blowing their minds. Who is this kid? Could you imagine? A 12-year-old just rattling off and just totally asking questions, knowing the answer already, seeing what they're going to say, and then, you know, he gives his input, either correcting them or, yes, you speak well because A, B, and C. I mean, this, this dialogue, who knows? They might have been up for all that time. They, maybe they didn't go to bed. They were so astonished. They don't want this to end. 
But what happens with Jesus? Mom and dad come back and they're like, why did you do this to us? You, you scared us to death. We've been worried sick. And it's kind of like, hey, you're in trouble for being in the temple, for being in the house of the Lord, talking about the things of the Lord. Wasn't in trouble, but you can see the, the heart of the mother. Why have you done this? And what does she say? Your father and I have sought you anxiously. Remember a moment ago I talked to you about how careful Luke was in stating to us that Joseph and his mother? Well, Mary doesn't quite make that distinction in this case because your father and I were worried sick. Now let's see what Jesus says. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Father being capitalized. The previous verse when Mary says, your father and I were worried. You, you had us. We were anxious. That father's not capitalized here. Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business is capitalized. In other words, it's a gentle reminder, a gentle correction to his mother saying, hey, Joseph's not my father. My, his business is carpentry. My business is my father's business. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, he would say later on. I would be about my father's business. In other words, you guys know what I am to do. You guys know what I'm destined for. It's a gentle correction, and he, he, he says, why did you seek me? You traveled for a day, realized I wasn't with you. You came back for a day, and then at that day, you traveled around, probably hitting all the places that we were that day. Oh, gosh, where'd we go then? Then we went to, oh, you know what? Let's try the temple. And, of course, there's where you find him. Why did you seek me? You knew where I'd be. I am about my father's business. So it's a correction, gentle correction. But here's what's important. We continue on. Verse 50. But... They did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. I wonder how many times that happened. You know, Jesus did that all the time. He did that all the time. He would, he would throw out these one-liners, and people would be like, huh? Like, I don't get it. Like, what do you say? Do you guys know that in the Gospels? You've read it, and you're like, in these times, and then he would he'd rattle out this one-liner and walk away. And everyone's like, what, what did that mean? I wonder how many times that happened in the house. You know, Mary and Joseph, they're talking to him and everything, and he'd rattle off something awesome and leave. And they're looking at each other going, what did he say? What did that mean? Here's one of those times. Did you not know that I'd be about my father's business? And they, they did not understand the statement which he spoke. Here's the other cool thing, though. Jesus never had to camp and convince everybody that he was right. And this is important because I am that way. I want to say what I think I'm right, and then I'm going to convince you that I'm right. 
And I'm going to camp on it and spend time until I've convinced you that I'm right. And then I want to hear you tell me that I'm right. And it's like, you guys, Jesus never did that. Jesus would say truth and he'd walk away. And this would be hanging in the air and everyone would be like, huh? I don't get that. And then sometimes years later, they would. Sometimes years later, now we are given a truth and we're like, um, yeah, I'm not. What does that mean? And years later, the Lord reveals in time. We read something and we're like, I don't get it now. I see through a glass dimly. But sometimes then clarity comes later. Those things revealed to us, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Those things revealed to us later, they're, they're ours forever. And, and we get it and we're like, wow. And we're astonished like the scholars were. We're blown away. But Jesus never camped on it. He, he never had to ar- set, you know, set up an argument. And, and he never had to fight to make sure he was right. He'd speak truth and let it lie. And that's beautiful. That speaks to me. In love and grace, I want to be that way. I want to just speak truth. I want to minister to people. I want to speak truth and just, I don't want to have to try to convince you. The Lord will take care of that. The Holy Spirit will work on your heart. I just want to know the truth and then give the truth. And I don't want to have to try to get into an argument and fight to convince you. They didn't understand what he said, but check this out. Verse 51, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And look at this. And he was subject to them. He was subject to them. Another word for that would be he was obedient. Jesus was right. Hands down. He was right. And he knew he was right. But he didn't just stay there and say, I ain't going home. Nope. I'm right. And I'm staying right here. I'm doing my father's business. What did he do? There was a general correction. Mom, you know what I'm here for. You know why I'm here. You didn't have to see. If you wanted to know where I was, just come back to the temple. You know what I'm doing. I'm doing my father's business. It was a general truth, a general correction. But then nonetheless, after that, what did he do? He went with them and he was subject to them. And I can so easily go, you know what? I'm right. And I want to prove to you that I'm right. You know, sometimes you can be right and you'll know more than your boss. You ever been there? Your boss is an idiot. And you know it. (laughs) And you know that you're right. But the Christian has to reel that back and say, you know what? I've given a gentle correction. But nonetheless, they're the boss. And they said, do this. And it's like, I have to become subject to those that are in charge of me. You know, you can be right in your marriage. Guys, well, I'm right. Let's see how that works out for you. You camp on that hill for a while, right? General correction. We're subject to one another, right, as man and wife. Well, I'm right in my ministry. I am right. And we are right here in church. We're correct. We're we got the we're, we're right. And we stand on this and I'm going to convince you. 
I don't know if that sounds like love. And there are times for that, of course. But I think you guys are getting my point. We can be subject to those above us and subject to those obedient and have that heart. Jesus was right. Oh, he could have just stomped in his foot and said, nope, I'm right and that's it. But he was subject to them. And you know what that's a sign of? When you and I get into that place where we can understand that that point where we, we finally pass that pivot point where we realize that, yeah, I'm right, but you know what? What's the greater good? Oh, I can stomp my feet and plant, no, I'm right, and convince and all that, but the greater good would be, you know what? I'm going to submit. Submission is a direct correlation to your maturity as a Christian. Did you know that? Can you submit? Can I? No, <laughs> not very easily. I'm working on that. The Lord's working in my heart. And hopefully over time, you know, I can submit easier. But this is not just for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. Guys, can you submit? Can you submit and, and, and just speak truth? Let it lie. Let the Holy Spirit do his job. And then be subject and obedient. Jesus did. Here's our perfect picture. It's a beautiful thing if you think about it. This is my heart's desire is I want to get to that point where I don't have to just plant and just make an argument. I can just submit. I can submit to those that are in charge of me. I can submit to my boss. We can be in submission to those who, you know, are, uh, you know, our pastor. All of these things. He was subject to them, verse 51. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. She tucked that one away. Don't understand this just yet, but look at this young man. You imagine the scholars. I mean, who knows what the conversation was. Oh, you're the mother? Oh, <laughs> where did he get his training? What, what is going on? I mean, I would love to be at your home Bible studies. I mean, this kid is something else. I mean, he, we, we're astonished. And she's probably like, hey, thank you. Come on. <laughs> you scared us to death. I mean, could you imagine? My mind, I, I like to think about what, what's happening behind the scenes. She kept it all in her heart. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We are at the end of a crazy year. We came into this year before we did, at the end of 2019, the theme and the thought was by many pastors and teachers going into 2020. Oh, 2020! 2020 vision. You know, and that was... I. I you know, I had actually thought that myself too, but realized I wasn't original. I mean, a lot of guys, I mean, think about it. I mean, a lot of guys, that was the teaching. That was the thought, you know, we're going into 2020, 2020 vision. We'll see things clearly. What have we seen this year? We've seen a lot. And as we've looked at the events and the things that have unfolded this year, we're, we're kind of blown away of what we've seen. And... Now, we're at the end of 2020, and we're getting ready to go into 2021. And we'll close with this. 
as we go into 2021, my heart's desire, what the Lord has shown me, is that I want to be about my father's business. I want to be about my father's business. What does that mean? And what does that look like? My challenge for you is to pray about what that looks like for you. What is being about your father's business? How does that fit you? We're told to share the gospel. That we all must be doing as Christians. Go forth to the uttermost parts of the world and, and preach the gospel. That we know. But what beyond that? Lord, show me. What, how can I be about your business? in 2021 and beyond. It's a fresh thought. It's a fresh revealing. A reminder to all of us, if I'm doing things in my flesh, if I'm hammering away with that wooden stick and my cutting edge is gone and I'm just trying to make things happen in my flesh but the Holy Spirit's just not in it, Lord, reveal that to me. Let me see that. Let me repent and let me get back to my first love. Let me get back to that so that I can be used effectively. That cutting edge is returned and I'm on fire for the Lord. And Lord, now you can just say, you know what? Here's what I want you to do in 2021 for me. It's a challenge I throw out to all of you. It's a challenge that I'm going to take myself. Lord, show me. What can I do for you? How can I be about your business more effectively in 2021? That's my prayer. And may it be yours. And may our hearts be softened as we leave here today. We'd be thinking about that. Lord, what would you have me do? How can I be effective in your kingdom? What would you have me do? How would I be about your business? That's my prayer.